Our text today is from the fourth chapter of Hebrews. If you would turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7 will be what we'll be endeavoring to look into. It's page 1198 there if you're using one of our pew Bibles. We've referenced rest many times in our last messages. And I think we can say universally that we all enjoy a good rest. All are pleased to enjoy a good night's sleep. We've uh, had a special understanding of that in our home recently. Karen hasn't been feeling too well and had a couple of tough nights, which we were up quite a bit. So it was a delight to get beyond that. Well, not only is a good night's rest welcome, but a good nap can be a blessing as well. Now, perhaps some of you uh, with younger children can relate to this particularly well. Getting uh, kids to a nap can be a much-needed rest for you in your day. And when those little nappers don't get that nap, then there can be a lot of fun that goes on in the afternoon around the house. Well, getting a good night's sleep can be uh, as much coveted when children are nursing and, and mom and dads are getting up three to four times a night. And I'm thankful to be beyond that uh, quite a ways. Not too far, you don't have to comment about that. And dads, I, I, I pray that you're getting up to offer assistance and encouragement, aren't you? Um, even if you're perhaps not uh, as able to really help, trust that you're having a conversation to let your sweet wife know that you are willing to help. I also know firsthand that college students enjoy a good nap when uh, Avril will run hard for about two weeks, burning the candle at both ends, and then he comes home and, and it looks more like a, a short hibernation or a long winter's nap that he goes down for. And, and, and as adults, uh, you know, a good night's sleep can truly be particularly welcome as in, thick, in sickness, as I mentioned, or, or, you know, when we wake up too often in the middle of the night from some of the blessings of middle-aged and beyond life. And, and can we just confess here one to another that a good afternoon nap can be very welcoming, a little blankie in a recliner. Um, not that I have first-hand knowledge of this. But if I did, I'm sure it would be wonderful. Well, we've mentioned rest many times from Scripture. And really, there is a direct connectivity to all of this because the idea of rest is an all-encompassing facet in the Scripture. The, the idea of rest was mentioned back in chapter 3 a few times. And we discussed it more in depth when we looked at Psalm 95. Today, we're going to see it much more specifically brought forward for us. And is even as we move through the next few weeks. Because of that, I've titled our message for today, Who Doesn't Enjoy Good Rest? Who Doesn't Enjoy Good Rest? Well, let's look at our verses in verses 1 to 7 and understand how these facets come forth in our text. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard 
For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Well, who doesn't enjoy a good rest? As we enter chapter 4, we find ourselves in the midst of the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews. It began back in verse 7 of chapter 3. And it continues all the way through the 13th verse of chapter 4. It is the longest warning passage in Hebrews. The, the third warning passage will be close but it falls short by a few verses. And what we understand from these warning passages, as we've mentioned before, is that the critical importance amidst the argument of the superiority of Christ in the book of Hebrews is that we must recognize our responsibility. That we must not become complacent, understanding that Christ is supreme over all things and has done all things, that we can neglect our responsibility and coast no, not at all. So he brings these strong warnings to us about how we are to live our lives and they are vital pieces of scripture for us to pay close attention to. This warning passage, like the first and the third to follow it, are all parenthetical. That means that the flow of the text is moving along and he sandwiches as if in a small parenthesis this warning it stands out in that nature and tells us that we must pay particular attention because of that element. The first part of the warning passage focused on unbelief and disobedience. We saw that back in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. If you look at those verses, you see the parallels that immediately come forth between disobedience and unbelief. He said in verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So if we see, verse 19, For if we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the lack of entry into the rest is a result of disobedience and a, and a result of unbelief. And the two are parallel disobedience leads to unbelief they are concomitant and part one of another we cannot be obedient and unbelievers we cannot be unbelievers and be disobedient it simply does not go together so as we understand this warning we recognize too the audience that was being shown to us if we went back to verse 12 of chapter 3, we're reminded that it says, Take care, brethren. And immediately we think, brethren, this is an address to those who are believers. But as we've discussed, this is that third audience in Hebrews. There is the unbelievers that are within the church, as there are within every church. 
There are the committed believers, and then there is that third audience, which are the false believers. Those who think they are saved and are not. We know that that's the case from the rest of verse 12, where it says, therefore, if any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, that's not part of a believer's description. It also says that they will fall away from the living God. Well, believers do not fall away from the living God. It tells further in verse 13 that they not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the audience that was immediately prior to this are the false believers. And the danger of this group, beloved, is their comfort. Their conviction that everything is fine with me. I'm really just all all right. There's no need to worry. Like other deceived alleged Christians. Have you ever had a conversation with a Jehovah Witness? Aren't they convinced of their doctrine? They don't need to hear what you have to say. Because they're sure that they are all right. And that although you would tell them that the scriptures they have are changed from all of the other popular modern translations. No, 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 I'm fine. So also with the Mormons. No, it's great that we have the Bible, but we really have added to that something much more important in the Book of Mormon. And so it can also be even amongst Catholics. Now, I'm not saying that all Catholics are unsaved, but if there are those that are within the Catholic Church that have come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that the Word has penetrated them and the Spirit, and they continue to read and to understand, they will recognize the heresies that are going on in the church, and they will leave that church. For you cannot have any part with unrighteousness as goes on there. But each of these are comfortable. I'm fine where I am. I know everything's going to be okay for me. Why don't you just, you know, go ahead and, and thank you for sharing, but take that message off to some of those really bad people out in the world. Well, this is the deceitfulness of sin that we saw in verse 13 of chapter 3. The first half of the second warning is accompanied by God's oath, by his swearing in verse 18 of chapter 3. And we noted that connectivity last week to our speech and particularly to those holding the office of elder and deacon. We noted this because those men are held to a higher standard. We recognize that all will give an account that all have a stewardship, incidentally, what we're going to be discussing in this first week of our men's Bible study. But we all have a stewardship, and we all will be held accountable before God. Yet those of, that hold church offices of elder or deacon are held to a higher standard. And that their speech must be yes, yes, or no, no. That there cannot be any double-tongued nature, for they are to reflect God. They are to represent God to his church. And it is vital that their oaths are honorable and that they are true as God's oath, which will not be changed. So now, with that as our background, we move to the second half of this second warning passage. And the text itself is the transition to the second half of the warning passage. You see, verse 1 of chapter 4 serves as its own introduction. So we'll let it be that introduction. And in fact, I have so titled it, An Introduction to Rest. An Introduction to Rest. Let's look at verse 1 again. Therefore, 
Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. This is our introduction to rest. And notice the verse begins with therefore. Now, normally we wouldn't make too big a deal of this introductory conjunction. We often talk about the word therefore. It's good to know what it is therefore because it is a specific type of, of introduction. And, and some might well say, you know, we've seen this word before. We, we've seen therefore back in, in 2.17 of Hebrews. We've seen it in 3.1 of Hebrews. But really we have not. You see, that was a different Greek word. And, and the importance of this is it starts to unfold the beauty that comes to bear in this text. Others might say, well, we saw therefore back in 3.7. But that was a different type of conjunction. It was inferential. It was just telling us to infer something about the text. We see our author uses all kinds of conjunctions. He uses temporal conjunctions that tell us the time, that tell us when something is happening, such as in 1.6, and it says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He uses simple prepositions, such as in Hebrews 2.1, which many translations unfortunately also translate as therefore, but he is making a simple statement of fact. All of this is showing a very unique perspective to this word therefore, an amazing beauty and nuance of the text. Because as he comes to this text, this therefore actually is emphasizing vocally this transition to rest. It's, it's almost as if we've come through all of this section of the first warning passage and there's a huge gasp. Therefore. And the rest is indicated in the beauty of this particular conjunction. He is telling us all that we have gone through, all of the burden of considering the wilderness generation millions of whom were slain in the wilderness. As we consider those within the church, the unbelievers, the false believers, and now we come to a new point. Now we come to the rest, and therefore, and this conjunction moves us into the glorious intricacy of this grammar, and it shows us the nuanced beauty of this letter. It, it is as if we consider in nature the beauty that exists in the simple life cycle of a tree through a year. How it begins to bud in the spring of the year. And the flower comes forth to attract bees and other insects to pollinate the other trees about. And then moves to a seed pod which will later in the fall fall off and begin to plant new life and new trees. The nuances and the beauty in God's creation. And it exists in everything that God has done in the human body when we consider a child in the womb who is in an environment of water where anyone else would drown. But as soon as that child is born, the body mechanisms change and synapses begin to close and immediately it is told that it is to transition to breathing air. How does that happen? in the nuanced beauty of God. And that same exquisite beauty occurs even in this simple preposition, therefore. Well, having given us this glorious beginning to the introduction, we're taken to the main content 
Let us fear. Us here demonstrates the transitions as each have addressed different facets in these warning passages. As I mentioned, the first audience was the children of Israel back in verse 7. Those who came out, the Exodus generation. And we elaborated in Psalm 95 as we talked about all that they had done. The second audience in verse 12 was the, those called brethren, but they were the false believers. But not really believers as we've seen. They were those who just were confused in what they thought and had misled themselves. And now we come to the true believers. Some would argue that this is speaking of unbelievers still because in our first verse it says, lest any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Well, could that be a concern for a real believer? They would argue it's referring to those who will not enter God's rest. But the prior verb is what controls this phrase. That verb seems. It says in verse 1 that you may seem to have come short of it. They haven't really come short of it, but there is a potential. There is a perception. They seem to have come short of it. And we'll see why they haven't truly come short of it and what the author is revealing in just a moment. But let's return and confirm for ourselves the audience for just a moment. We know this is addressing believers because of what we see in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, we have good news preached to us as they did. So it's contrasting the believers here and the unbelievers. Those whose hearing was not united with faith. And those who did not unite in faith. Verse 3 again uses that pronoun, we, and references those who believe. So the audience of our section are believers. And the message is, let us fear in case anyone comes short of the rest. Fear is indeed a healthy attitude of a Christian. Now there are two components of fear that we must understand. There is the reverence and awe. There is the recognition that God is holy and other than us. And that we must come in awe of him. We must come recognizing his greatness. But then there is also the dread and dismay. The, the true fear of the wrath of God. For not only is our God a saving God, but he is a consuming fire. Jesus himself told us in Luke 12, 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Likewise, Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The context of our discussion is set in this condition of fear. The condition is while a promise remains of entering his rest. So there's this conditional time frame of this period while we are yet to enter. The term promise is also introduced to us here for the first time in Hebrews. And, and this becomes a key component in the book. It is the promise of the divine God. It is the eternal promises that await us for which we can hold fast to that which he has shown us in his word. This concept of promise comes up seven times in Hebrews we see the word prominently in three other of Paul's books, in Romans and in Ephesians and in Galatians. 
And in each of those, four times in Ephesians, six in Romans, and even nine in Galatians, this powerful concept is used to describe the divine promise. A promise remains of entering his rest. And here, that eternal rest is the salvation. It is the salvation which is shown to us through Jesus Christ. The life which he has lived, his life, the, the perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. And each of those exemplifying an element in our lives. Understanding that we are, are sinners and that our sin separates us from Christ. But as we confess and as we seek to live in obedience to him, then we are able to follow. And as he led through death and as he endured the penalty which we deserve, we too can hold fast recognizing that we will have an eternity with him. And this is the divine promise. So if we are to fear lest we come short of the promise of his rest, then when is this? What is the condition of that time frame that's described by this phrase? Well, to answer it, we must know what this rest is. The concept of rest first appeared back in verse 11 of chapter 3. And, and the quote of Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 was from Psalm 95. We discussed that there were two components of rest. The first element of rest that was brought forward and shown to us was the element of rest of physically entering the land of Canaan. This, this was for the rest of the nation of Israel which were offered by God during their enslavement in Israel. In Egypt, excuse me. God promised them the physical rest from their labor in the land of milk and honey. The land which God showed to Abraham, which he had Abraham walk about on, and everywhere which his foot touched would become their land. And as the children of Israel are crying out in the oppression of slavery, God tells them that they will be delivered. He has shown that in his word prior to that, and now he is seeking to bring them to that promise. But they do not achieve it. As Psalm 95 revealed, there was more than just physical rest. There was also a spiritual rest. There was that rest of salvation. The eternal rest from all of our earthly labors. And as we consider rest in this overarching idea, whether it be physical sleep, or whether we move to the physical deliverance of the nation of Israel, or to the spiritual rest which will be for all eternity and the rest from all of our labors. I pray that that is just the most precious promise to you. Consider the battle that we face in our lives with sin. Every day recognizing that sin rears its ugly head and that one day that battle will be finished the rest from the struggle of this life. Beloved, do you desire that rest? Is it a precious gift that God is offering to us? It is this eternal rest which is being addressed. We know that because it says here in the text, it is His rest that is being offered to us. That is God's rest. So the promise of this eternal salvation, of this eternal deliverance, is what's being spoken of. And this rest is available while we are yet still alive. Before our eyes close in death. This is 
This is the time frame. Until we die, the promise remains of being able to enter his rest. Once we take our last breath, it is too late. But up until then, the promise is yet extended. And this is such amazing grace. Unfortunately, so many take advantage of that grace. Oh, you know, I I'm fine. When, when I get to that point, when I get to the, my deathbed, then I'll go ahead and make that profession. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all good now, but, but I'll, make, I'll make that transition. I'll, I'll call on the Lord right before it's my time. There's only one problem with that. None of us know our time. Only the Lord has numbered our days. But yet God continues to offer this grace amidst the hardness of our heart, amidst the stubbornness of our sin. God continues to pour out his grace and this glorious offer of eternal rest. But we're called to be fearful lest anyone may seem to come short of it. The key to this phrase is the word seem. It, it isn't that judgment of falling short has occurred, but rather that there would be a fear that one not fall short. The context here is alluding to an outward expression of faithfulness. It's alluding to our consideration of our own lives, of our assessment of our own lives. We're to make certain that we do not fall short. And, and the ones who do are those who are to fear. Another important component is the verb come short at the end of verse 1. Notice it says there in your Bibles, have come short. The verb is a, a perfect tense, which means it denotes a past action that occurred in historic time, but has continuing results. It is that which is, that which we have come short of. What this means for our discussion is that this coming short is not the idea of a simple past failure. It's not that we look back on our lives and say, you know, there was this serious transgression that I made and, and I still regret it and I'm still burdened by it. It's not talking about that simple past action. It's also not talking about a simple present abiding failure a transgression that we have committed recently and then that we are burdened about. No, that's not what's being spoken of either. It is that we have come short. It is that it is an ongoing pattern in our lives. It is a past sin which continues to express itself in the life of the individual. You know, I had a serious problem in my past life with this one particular challenge. And it's continued to haunt me. And it continues to haunt me today because I continue to give it sway in my life. I've not taken the truth of the power of Scripture in Colossians 3.5 where it tells us that we are to mortify the deeds of our flesh, to kill them. I have not taken that sin. I have not taken that lust. I have not taken that gossip. And I have not pulled it apart and I have not thrown it to the ground and ripped it from my flesh so as to kill it but I allow it to go on. These are the conditions for which some may seem to have come short. And these are the areas which we must be careful about. Well, what does it look like to fall short? Isn't that the key question? 
if the danger exists for which we are to be fearful, and, and clearly it does, as the text tells us so, then how does one fall short? Well, the answer was just given to us in our last section, in verses 18 to 19. It was disobedience and unbelief. Disobedience being the evidenced violation of God's command, that past action, if you will, and disbelief mana being manifested as a result of the fruit of the believer's life. If we wonder where we are with the Lord, we need simply only to look in the scripture and recognize what it tells us, that we must bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. What is the fruit of your lives, beloved? Is it the fruit of righteousness? The point of the introduction to rest is that we are to continually examine our lives. And if there is an area where we are found wanting, where we fall short, we are to be fearful. And we are to do something about it. This is exactly what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What does that mean? If we think that we stand, if we think that we are all right, if we are proud in our position, in our stance, let us be careful that we not stumble and fall. For pride comes before a fall. Paul also said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. At the end of his second letter to the Corinthians in verse 13 and 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test beloved we must be continually examining our own lives and how do we do that do I go up and, and ask my best friend hey how am I doing am I doing alright here do I go and speak with my wife am I being the exemplary husband do I look in the mirror and say you know I look pretty good I think it's okay no we look into the mirror of God's word. As we were reminded in Sunday school this morning, we have to be daily, continually pouring ourselves into God's word and allowing it to be the mirror, allowing it to reveal the truth of our hearts because we cannot understand our own heart. We must be understanding that while a promise remains of his rest, that, that we not be those who seem to have come short of it that we are fearful, that we live our lives not in fear of doom as believers, not in a constant burden of God's wrath, for we are delivered from that if we are truly His. But we live in a constant introspection of who we are, a constant understanding that we are but flesh and blood. And as the scripture tells us, our flesh wages war with the Spirit in us. Beloved, we are an ongoing war. We are an ongoing dichotomy. What did Paul say in Romans 7? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I want to do, the, those are the ones that I do not. Woe, the hateful man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a battle in us. And we must recognize it. When do we lose the war? When we don't understand that we're in a battle. 
And that's what he's calling us to. You know, this is very much like if we perceived that there were a man with, with uh, much money invested in the stock market. Millions of dollars that he had put into the stock market. You can bet that man would be very carefully looking every day to see what's happening in each of those stocks. To watch over his resources, would he not? Well, if so is to be the case of a man with an earthly resource, how much more with an eternal promise of salvation and eternity with God ought we be paying attention for our very lives? So with a clear call for us to examine our lives as believers, we attain the promise of entering his rest. And now we delve into what that rest looks like for those who have attained it. And with this as our introduction, we moved to our first point in verse 2. Faith's profit in rest. Faith's profit in rest. Look at verse 2 with me. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard we indeed have had good news preached to us. Amen. We have been shown and our eyes have been opened to the glories and the excellencies of Christ. The gospel has been proclaimed to us. Good news to believers. We are free from sin. The debt has been paid. What a blessing we have in understanding this truth. We have had the good news. This is such a turn and such a massive positive statement. And the question of who enters from verse 1 is now answered. That those who hear and respond to that good news are those who need not fear because they are the ones who have entered. But we have had the gospel preached and another perfect verb is used here. What does that mean? Again, it's a past action with a continuing result. If the gospel has been preached to you and it has had an effect, then it has changed your heart. And there is an effect that is ongoing. My life is now different than it was. I, I, I function and live as a result of the message which I have heard. I am no longer that person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are you all new? I'm all out of the old. I'm all moving towards the new. Oh, if only God would have been so kind as to remove all of our sins at that time. But he does not work that way. For it is the ongoing process of sanctification that goes on. But we are different. I am not who I was. Is that you? Is that preaching? Is that past action of the gospel preaching now being lived out in your life? Are you a living example of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world about you? That's what we are called to. We are the A-team, beloved. God has left no one else. It is you and it is me. We are those who are to be speaking the power of the truth. And therein, this perfect action, this past tense proclamation goes on until the Lord returns. The gospel is preached. And for those who believe the ongoing action is fruit bearing. The gospel was preached and yet is being so. But then, 
our verse is mitigated by the next statement. Just as they also. Well, who are the they? The they is the reference to the first generation Israelites out of Egypt. The first generation of Israel had the good news preached to them also. That is, they received the message of salvation. Beloved, the message of salvation is the same in both Testaments. It has not changed. The good news of faith and believe in God through His Son, Jesus Christ, has been fully revealed to us in the New Testament, but that was the good news that was proclaimed to the nation of Israel. They too had that message brought to them. The two generations here are being brought face to face, and this is a vital thing for us to pick up on. Our letter is written to Jewish Christians, first generation Jewish Christians in the time just after the Lord. We mentioned last week how we are about 40 years after the Lord's death. And now they're being compared with the first generation Israelites. Those who also had the good news preached to them. So this introduces the question of what are the results of the message preached. And we don't have to wait long to find out. For the second half of verse 2 tells us, But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The preaching had no profit because it was not accompanied by faith. What did it mean to be accompanied by faith? We, we know what faith is, do we not? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The assurance, we, we have an assured hope not like our world hopes, not a hope that we're going to go buy a lottery ticket and win a million dollars. We have an assured hope in the promise of God because we have a risen Savior. And it has been assured to us in His promise that we too will follow. That is the assured hope. It is a conviction of the things that we've not seen. We have not seen the miracles that were shown. We have not seen with our own eyes the Son of God, but we have a conviction that these are the truth and we hold to that conviction. And we know that our faith is not something which we choose. For if it were something we chose, it would be something we would lose. And Ephesians 2.8 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. We have been saved by the gracious, unmerited favor of our God and Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. It has been given to us as a gift, not something that we could earn, not something that we could ever merit. But that is what our faith is. That is what preaching must be accompanied by. And they, that is the first generation Israelites, did not profit from the good news because they did not have faith. So for them, there was no profit of rest. That which was shown to them, which they initially longed for, which they cried out for in Egypt, namely deliverance, it was not achieved because they would not believe. 
All of the promises that were held out in the land of milk and honey, the homes which they would not have to build, the rest because they would move in and the orchards were already grown, the houses were already existing. They did not achieve because they did not believe. It's like that stock market investor. And as he watches his stocks and he sees that there is a significant downward trend, but he didn't believe what he saw and he was sure it was going to make a turn. So he waits and he waits and he waits until he has lost his vast millions. So also with Israel, with the first generation, they saw the miracles of God. They heard from Moses. But they did not believe. So is the, with the Jewish false believers in Hebrews. They had seen Christ. They had been told about his power and about the resurrection. But they did not believe. There is just a difference in the understanding of the knowledge that they had and they did not get to a point where their head knowledge became heart knowledge. They were apart from all of this truth. Yet even though the introduction to rest resulted in a question of who would attain this rest, the question of the warning in faith's profit in rest is that this generation did not receive the profit. We must understand, we must place ourselves back into this place, into this time frame, and recognize how grievous this was. We can read this and say, oh, well, um, they, had, they didn't make it because they did not have faith. We must understand how this felt to this first generation Jewish believer. How does it feel for us? And, and I, we all have those in our families who have passed before us and who did not know the Lord. How burdensome is it to recognize that they will not be with us for eternity? Now imagine that all of your history, all of your forefathers were all dead and gone and separated in unbelief. This was a burden beyond measure for these folks to consider. As if all of our parents here in the room today, all of our grandparents, all of our great-grandparents, none of them were in heaven. How grievous to recognize how many that were lost. This is the message that's being brought to us. That although they had good news preached... It was not united with faith. And therein there was no profit. And the message of faith's profit in rest was that it had to be accompanied by belief. But a lack of profit in verse 2 is contrasted strongly and sharply in our second point in verse 3. That is faith's possession in rest. Faith's possession in rest in verse 3. Verse 3 says... For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Faith's possession is achieving this rest, although the, the rest that was achieved here comes through believing. The testimony of the Israelites was disobedience and unbelief as repeatedly discussed to this point. But the belief of the first generation Christians is contrasted with that unbelief. It's contrasted with the wrath that was upon that first generation out of Exodus. 
The author is setting up this powerful contrast for us. Those who did not believe did not enter, but you, beloved, you who have faith, you shall receive. You shall have this rest. Even though those, as he swore in his wrath, would not enter. And then, having told us of this incredible blessing, that despite those who did not enter, that those with belief would, he takes us to another component, and he says at the end of verse 3, although his works were finished from the foundation of the earth. He closes by describing God's hand in completed creation. That, that is to say, God's finished work provided everything that would have been necessary. The perfect, idyllic creation. It was good, and it was good, and it was good, and good, and it was very good. And Adam and Eve were placed into this perfect creation and all that they needed was there before them. But they failed. Their progeny were graciously given the good news as well in the beginning of creation. They were told about the first proclamation of the gospel, the one who would crush the head of their enemy. They understood that rest because we see that in Genesis 5, they talk about Noah and his name meaning the one who would give us rest. And then the rest which Jesus promises, as one commentator notes, the beginning of peace in this life is through pardon and sonship, the consummation to follow in glory. The rest has been held out from the beginning of time. It continues to be heralded even in the book of Revelation where Revelation 14, 13 says that they shall rest from their labors. Well, the end of verse 3 leads us into this fabulous discussion of another facet of God's rest. We've had the physical rest we've spoken about. We've had the eternal rest. And next we move into the Sabbath rest. But we'll have to come back next week to pick up that discussion. So for now, we see that rest is far beyond a good nap or a good night's sleep. It is the eternal rest which comes to those who believe. Rest that comes with this condition of not fearing. Yet it is a rest that is often confused. Whenever I see a, a headstone, and, and I spent quite a bit of time with my grandfather who used to work in a graveyard, and all those headstones, R.I.P. And as a child, I had no idea what that was. And uh, Grandpa, what is that? Oh, that's rest in peace. And I thought, oh, what a pleasant thought. Rest in peace. And indeed it is. Yet, I must now, when I see those headstones, I must stop and ponder. For the world has a misnomer that somehow death brings peace. But for those to whom the message preached was not accompanied by faith, it is not peace. It is not rest. It is the horror of eternal judgment in hell. But for the one who has faith, it is perfect rest. It is perfect peace. It is the eternal hope of being home with our Lord. And we've been called to fearfully consider our lives to examine our walk and to make sure that we do not come short of that rest, to make sure there is no disobedience in our lives. And we do this, beloved, by daily examination, 
by daily looking into God's word, by intimate fellowship with him and, and prayer, seeking his face with regards to our own lives and our own shortcomings. And when we find areas that are not as they should be, we repent, we change, we seek to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because, beloved, then there is no fear. Then we are assured in the hope of our faith and in the love of our Savior. And we are strengthened to strive more fully to serve, with, serve our God all our lives. And our response is not one from guilt, not one from obligation, but it is joy and it is freedom. It is the blessedness of knowing we are doing what God has called us to do, what he has made us to do. May it be that this growth is what we each see as we examine ourselves in light of this text. And through this day and through this week, may we be focused on that growth. May Christ be most glorified in us because we are most satisfied in him. And to God alone be the praise and the glory.